Hey, Jen, want to continue our conversation about methods of birth control? Mm, let's wrap this up. Great. Today, we're going to discuss the pros and cons of the specific options for birth control. Let's do it. Welcome to the Intimate Covenant Podcast, where we believe the Bible and great married sex both belong on your kitchen table. That's right, we're talking about holy, covenant-bound, intimate relationships with hot sex. We're Matt and Jen, founders of Intimate Covenant. We offer biblical teaching and resources to help married couples achieve a fuller relationship and an extraordinary sex life. For more information, visit our website, IntimateCovenant.com. Welcome, friends. Welcome. Thanks for joining us for another week here on the Intimate Covenant Podcast. So glad to have you. We have an information-packed episode prepared for you this week. Uh, That said, we do expect it's probably going to run a little bit longer than most, so we probably ought to jump right in. Let's get into our topic for today, um, which is part two of um, our podcast episode last week, all about birth control. Sure. So last, last week we talked about, uh, is birth control scriptural? Mm-hmm. Is it in line with God's purpose for mankind to be fruitful and multiply? We As, didn't get too much hate mail, so I'm thinking we, we you know, we're, we're in line with what most of you all think. Uh, or they just unsubscribed. <laughs> that, that could be it too. But uh, in short, you know, I, I don't want to summarize or, or go too deep into this again, but you can certainly go back and listen last week if it's mm-hmm. unclear. But in short... It, it seems abundantly clear to me from the rest of Scripture, besides Genesis 1, that procreation is not the sole purpose of marriage or for the, the sole purpose for mankind, right? Or, or the sexual act. Yes. Yeah. So, so, in fact, God's primary purpose for mankind is, in fact, to build a spiritual kingdom. Yeah. Uh, and it's also clear that life is a treasured and precious gift from God. Right. That's undeniable. Uh, and even life before birth is a treasured and precious gift from God. And so we are obligated to protect and to value that gift with uh, what we do and, and how we make decisions. But as with every gift from God, th- there seems to be nothing wrong with attempting to manage this procreative capacity of the marriage relationship in a responsible way. Right just like with every other gift that he gives us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we must carefully then examine our motivation uh, in how we are limiting this life-giving capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and evaluate our whys. Yes. Evaluate whether we're limiting God's blessings out of a sense of responsibility, mm-hmm. or is it coming from wanting to limit that potential blessing of a baby because based off of, materialism or just self-serving desires. Sure. So like like always, last week we challenged you to think of your whys when mm-hmm. it comes to birth control. Why are we or aren't we mm-hmm. uh, using birth control? So um, that said, for, for many couples, I think probably for most couples, you're going to spend a significant amount of time when you consider like the length of your marriage, mm-hmm. you're going to spend a significant amount of time trying to limit or trying to prevent the likelihood of pregnancy. For a lot of couples, that's true. Yes. And again, you can wrestle with what your reasons are for that, and I hope you will wrestle with your reasons. But 
for most of us, we're going to spend some time trying to prevent pregnancy or at least limit that likelihood. And Mm -hmm. just consider this statistic. In one year of unprotected intercourse, 85 out of 100 women would become pregnant. So if 100 women are having unprotected intercourse on whatever regular basis they tend to have it, Mm -hmm. they're going to get pregnant 85% of the time. That's a lot. That's a lot. And imagine how many babies there might be if we didn't give any consideration to... Uh, now, again, would that be a bad thing? Not necessarily. We're not here to make a, but, a judgment call it, about that. It, it may present some challenges to you in your, in your present circumstances, and that may not be the route that you want to go necessarily every time that you are fertile. So Right. So for most couples... Like you're saying, there's going to be a lot of years and a lot of effort into uh, put into thinking about preventing or limiting pregnancies. And so, you know, that can definitely be a significant barrier to fully enjoying sex. Yeah, that, that's a big point of stress potentially, especially for a wife who has to wrestle with the potential burden of carrying this baby for nine months, then you know, changing diapers for how many years and then uh-huh. feeding this child, paying for its college education. I mean, right. the, the list goes on and on and on. Teaching it to drive. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> let me just tell all you new mamas, you think it's bad until you have to teach them to drive. Yes. <laughs> and so it can be tough to relax and focus on your pleasure and on your partner's pleasure if you're worried about birth control. Yeah, that, that's going to get away not only with pleasure, but that's going to get in the way of connection. Absolutely. Uh, which is, again, the, the real point of our sexual relationship. So this fear and this stress and this concern is going to lead to this disconnection in other realms, including your emotional and your spiritual intimacy. It's not just going to interfere potentially with your sexual life. Mm-hmm. So that said, you know, birth control is not the answer to solve your relationship problems, okay? Right. But but it's potentially a part of the conversation that will help to establish some security right. for both of you. Because uh, again, this may impact husbands just as much as wives uh, it is in, in terms of the stresses that that might create. It absolutely does. And, you know, again, this is a conversation that you are likely needing to have in your marriage for a very significant amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a conversation that every married couple of childbearing age must be having, but you're going to have to have this over and over and over yeah. in your marriage right. because your circumstances will be changing. And so that may change you know, how you feel about birth control. It may change the methods that you want to use for birth control. I mean, it's, it is a long time in most women's lives that they are able to make and carry a baby. Absolutely. So I think before we go a whole lot further, though, we do want to be clear about something here. And that is that we are not prescribing birth control. Right. We're simply describing what the options might be. And we're also encouraging conversation between couples. But we are not saying that every couple needs to be on some form of birth control. Right. And and honestly, and it's not the point of this podcast, but we even recognize that there are many, many, many of you couples who would give so much sure. to be able to have to worry about birth control because for whatever reason, that isn't a possibility for you. And so mm-hmm. we honor you. We recognize 
you may want to skip this episode and that's okay. Um, But yeah, we're not here to say, you know, that birth control is mandatory. Um, We're just here to provide some information because frankly, and we kind of alluded to this last week, I don't know that we really had a lot of information when it came to early on in our marriage, really considering what were our options. Yeah, we didn't really know what the options were. We didn't understand the pros and cons or why we would choose one method or another. Right. And Um, we're not here to recommend any particular method of birth control um, because we don't know you. We don't know your situation. We don't. We don't know your preferences. Yes, because some of it's just a matter of convenience and preferences, and so right. but uh, we it's wanna, hard for us to make that recommendation. Right, but we really want to provide you know, all of the information so that you can have the conversations and make those decisions. And so we, as in mostly Matthew, oh. has done a lot of research. We know a whole lot more now. Than we knew. And it's completely irrelevant <laughs> to our lives at this point. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and so uh, we're going to share with you all the things that we have learned about birth control. We're going to try to break this down because um, there are a lot of options of birth control out there. Yes. Um, and they all have pros and cons. Yeah. And so in this episode, our purpose here is to run through those available options and in order to help you make the best choice for your particular circumstances. Um, and so in order to do that, we kind of came up with some important criteria. Yeah. So there are th- this list that I kind of was trying to keep in the back of my mind of what, what should we be considering? What are we, what methods or what criteria would we use to make a judgment on whether a certain method is uh, helpful or applicable for me and or your situation. So the first one, obviously, is the ethical moral um, kind of criteria, and that, in other words, maybe more specifically, how does this particular method work? Mm-hmm. And, and especially, does it terminate life? Right. Does it prevent fertilization? Or does it prevent implantation? And you should go back to last week's episode if you don't know what those two words mean, because we did a good job, I think, of defining our terms last week. So go listen to that. But um, that is an important place to consider, first and foremost. Um, That said, I think I was a little surprised by this. I thought there were for sure methods of birth control that were all about just preventing implantation. And I learned that most of the common, all of the common methods of birth control are really intended per, to prevent fertilization primarily. Yeah, that, They're intended to keep that egg and sperm from joining. Yeah, that, that's really the, the primary focus and methodology for all methods of currently available uh, and, and common birth control methods. Now, a, a few methods may also prevent implantation. Th- and by that, it means the joined egg and sperm, the fertilized egg, implanting or attaching to the uterine wall. Right. Now, the the, the way that these methods prevent ampl- implantation is largely theoretical, and it's really difficult to prove whether these methods are actually preventing or, or um, implantation at all. It, it's possible. It's theoretically possible. For In some cases, it's maybe more likely than in other cases. But for the most part, most of these methods that prevent implantation are also so effective at preventing fertilization that 
fertilization is unlikely and therefore implantation is very unlikely, mm-hmm. even without these other, you know, these other effects. So, right. you know, th- this, this does create a moral dilemma for some folks. I, I get that. I understand that. And that said, if it's troubling to you that you might be using a method that could be preventing the implantation of a fertilized egg, and if that mm-hmm. bothers you in that it might mean that you are inhibiting the potential for human life, and I, I get it, I think that's a reasonable consideration, then you need to avoid methods that have any possibility of preventing implantation. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to try to point out these methods as we go mm-hmm. so that you can pay, pay special attention to what methods are doing what. Right. Um, so beside the ethical um, moral criteria, we also want to kind of help break things down as far as the ease of use, the mm-hmm. convenience sure. of using it, you know, and, and within that we wanted to consider, does it disrupt the sexual experience? Is it easy to have a spontaneous sexual encounter while using that form of birth control or not. And, and also within that, you know, like, is it something that requires a daily routine um, versus a different form that's kind of a set it and forget it, if you will, you know, for for some people, it's easier to remember to take measures every time you have sex. In other words, the, the motive that sex is the motivator. And so Uh that reminds you to do what you need to do each time. And for others, They'd rather have some daily routine or other routine that is easy to remember uh, or potentially have a method that requires no forethought. It's just placed and it's it's working. So right. um, that that is uh, one potential or, or one consideration for convenience. Uh, availability. So some methods are over the counter. You can get them anywhere, mm-hmm. anytime. Some methods require a prescription or a visit to a doctor. Uh, obviously, cost is a con- consideration in all of these uh, matters mm-hmm. in terms of convenience. Some of these methods are much more expensive than other methods. Right. Um, and then we also wanted to consider the efficacy. Like, How well does it in general work? Sure. Um, are there adverse effects or side effects or risk to using it? Um, and then just the, the com- compatibility, if you will. So does it interact with other medications or does it impact breastfeeding yeah there, there's a lot of does it is it compatible with what i'm doing right now mm-hmm. and with my other potential health problems etc and then finally it, it what is the reversibility of this right. methodology how easy is it to have kids later when we decide that we don't want to continue to be on birth control so right. uh, all those things are are considerations and so we're gonna go through these different methods um, maybe spend more time on some than others, but we're going to go through all the different methods that are available and, and we'll let you decide what may be right for you. Friends, we appreciate you. We're thankful for your continued support and encouragement. Your downloads, your ratings, your reviews are so deeply touching. It means the world to us when you reach out with words of encouragement through your emails, social media posts, and especially those hugs when we get to meet some of you in person. It is encouraging to know that our work with this podcast and other projects are benefiting you. If the podcast has been a blessing to you and to your marriage, We would humbly ask that you consider supporting us at Patreon. Your monthly gift, as little as $5, would go a long way to helping us continue to produce this podcast 
and fund the many other plans that we have for the future to continue to help spread God's plan for marriage and holy sexuality. For more information and to support Intimate Covenant, go to patreon.com slash intimate covenant. We'd be honored for you to join us in this important work. Let's do it. All right. So right off the bat, feels like a very uh, extreme extreme (laughs) form of birth control is sterilization. Yeah. Well, I started there because it's the most obvious um, and sterilization techniques would include a vasectomy or for women, a tubal ligation. I also included hysterectomy here. Um, nobody gets a hysterectomy so they won't have kids again, but right. it does result in sterility, of course. Right. Um, so sterilization techniques are surgical techniques that are intended to prevent you from being able to reproduce. Right. Permanently. Right. So right. A, for a man, it would be a vasectomy. For a woman, usually a tubal ligation. So right. The, so the, the pros of this method, these methods are that they're permanent. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to think about it again. Right. And and it's, that, therefore, it's the most effective method available for couples who intend to keep having vaginal sex but are completely done having children. Sure. I mean, the failure rate is extremely low. Not zero. Sure. We all hear the stories about babies born after a vasectomy, et cetera. But um, those failure rates are extraordinarily low. Um, The the downside to these methods are also that it's permanent. Right. Right. You can't change your mind. In some cases, um, they can be surgically reversed, but not always successful. Yeah. Even the reversal surgeries are, are not always successful, uh, and you certainly will be less fertile after a reversal than you would have been before. But I think a- another, you know, con is that it it, it does require surgery, so it can be very invasive. It's it's by definition is invasive, um, and so yeah, it does require a surgical method, which means that these methods are also expensive. Right. So we're talking up to six thousand dollars for a tubal ligation for a woman and. $1,000 roughly for a vasectomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows? With inflation, that might be more these days. But um, th- those are expensive procedures. Some healthcare, some insurances cover them, some That's do not. That's true. You, so. you might be able to get that for free from, with some of some uh, healthcare options, but okay, uh, so still expensive. Sterilization, it's an option, but probably Choose not wisely. why most people are listening. <laughs> yes. Choose wisely. <laughs> so I think next, let, let's move into one... Um, it's kind of referred to by several different names. It's in general the fertility awareness methods or the FAM. FAM. FAM, as in family, FAM. Yeah. yeah, okay. It's known as the natural family planning, or some people refer to it as the rhythm method. Yeah, I think rhythm method is maybe an older terminology, but some of you may know it by that. Mm-hmm. This is the most natural methodology because yeah. it's a very simple concept. The, mm-hmm. the concept is don't ejaculate into your wife at a time when she is fertile. <laughs> That's pretty basic. Now, that, what that means, roughly five to seven days before her day of ovulation and one to two days after ovulation, you should avoid having sperm in the vagina if you don't want to get pregnant. Right. So it's about a, about a week's time where couples using this are not going to be having intercourse. Yeah. So if you want to avoid having a baby... During times of fertility, 
avoid having vaginal sex or use some other method of contraception. Right. You can still have vaginal sex, but at that time you would be using another form of contraception, which we'll cover. Um, and so this could be a benefit um, if it causes couples to regularly expand their sexual repertoire. I mean, you could be, you know, using that fertile week to encourage yourselves to have other forms other of things. sex. Do other things, right. You exactly. Th- then you don't need other methods of contraception, potentially, if you uh, are just not having vaginal sex during those times. Now, that said, when a woman is most fertile, um, that's generally the time that she is also hormonally... Well, that was a hard that, way to say, say that, that word. <laughs> hormonally more likely to be interested in vaginal sex. So Makes sense. You know, God kind of made it that way. And so that... Th- that could be a, something you just have to recognize as a potential con. Sure. The time that you most want to have vaginal sex. And, and I think really the biggest challenge to this method is that you have to know when she is going to ovulate. Right. If, if you don't know when ovulation is a, going to occur, then you don't know when you should be avoiding or not avoiding vaginal sex. Right. And so using this method means that you have to be doing some pretty regular things um, to know when ovulation is happening. Um, that often means um, basal temperature monitoring. And so you're going to be taking your temperature usually every morning. Um because a woman's temperature, core temperature changes mm-hmm. based on where she is in her hormonal cycle. Right. And, and then th- there are also ovulation tests. A lot of times they're used for couples who are trying to get pregnant, mm-hmm. but you can also use these tests to help predict when ovulation is likely to occur. So monitoring basal temperature, basal body temperature, and these uh, ovulation tests or LH tests, as they're uh, more uh, scientifically called. Um, using all of that data, you can really pinpoint down a very specific time when you're when the wife is likely to be ovulating. And there are apps, there's yes. subscription and, st- services and this that you day can use. Of yeah. technology, right. there's an app for that. So <laughs> there is an app for this that helps you accurately predict your fertile and your non-fertile days. You're going to be putting in your temperature and your ovulation test readings, um, and so. It can make it much easier to predict. Yeah, these services will will really very precisely pinpoint when ovulation is likely to occur. And then you know there are fertile days and there are non-fertile days, and you know which which is which and what you should do uh, in light of that. Now, I think the biggest pro to using this for most women is that there are no hormones involved. Um, there's no taking, no, no synthetic hormones no, involved. Yes, there's I, always hormones involved with <laughs> when women. When it comes to a woman, there's always hormones. <laughs> That's a good statement. There are no synthetic hormones involved. Um, and, and a lot of women want that these yeah. days, especially. Yeah, and th- there's no effect on later fertility or mm-hmm. breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Th- th- again, you're not introducing anything foreign, so there, there's really no effect. There's no side effects as a result of that. Um, yeah, th- there's, there's no required prescription. There's no medical profession. Um, medical professional appointments that you need to right. have or keep up with. You don't have to see a doctor to, to, to get started with this. And it's probably the most inexpensive method that's available mm-hmm. because I mean, it's potentially free. Yeah. Uh, all you need is a thermometer, essentially, and you could get a pretty good estimate of when these fertile days are going to be. Uh, the, the LH tests, the ovulation tests are also relatively affordable if you wanted to add that to mm-hmm. the, the methodology in how you're uh, predicting. 
And then if you even if you wanted to use a subscription service or one of these apps, most of them are relatively inexpensive. Uh, I mean, we're the talking several like, that we looked at they were about ten dollars a month. Ten bucks a most. month, yeah, yeah, a hundred dollars a year um, for some of these. So uh, you, you're looking at something that's pretty affordable on a month by month or even. Mm-hmm week-by-week week basis. Right. Uh, the, the downside to this method is that it requires taking your temperature, mm-hmm. plus or minus, taking your hormone levels, so that you can predict ovulation. You, right. you have to you, keep up with this. You have right, Exactly. You have to keep up with this. You have to stay on top of this in order to know when your cycle is. And you can't necessarily just say, well, that's my cycle, so it's going to be that way forever and always. Oh, no, that's not how a woman's body works. So, so you do have to keep up with it. And, and because they require specific tracking and taking your temperature and, and taking all these measurements, the efficacy of these methods are quite variable because yes. they are highly user dependent. Yeah. Uh, th- I mean, you could you, we see uh, efficacy rates with this method anywhere from 77% to 98% effective. Because, and that's all again, dependent on how good are you <laughs> yeah. at taking your temperature and, and also how likely is your, um, your hormonal schedule likely to, to be regular. Yeah. You know? and, so, and so the, the question to ask about this is how committed are you to tracking and changing your methods during these fertile periods? Right. How committed are you to, to keeping track of this? Um, right. But that said, efficacy of this methodology uh, increases significantly if you're using multiple methods of keeping track of your uh, ovulation. So. Mm-hmm. Just doing temperature is less effective than using temperature and the LH tests. And then if you add on to that, if you're willing to use additional contraceptive methods during the fertile periods, then mm-hmm. you can really b- boost the likelihood of, eff- of efficacy with these methods. So, And I think that takes us then into our next big category of contraceptives, and that is barrier methods. Right. So barrier methods would include things like condoms. I, I think everybody knows what a condom is. It also includes things like diaphragms or uh, another similar device called a cervical cap. Mm-hmm. Um, diaphragms and cervical caps, for, for those who don't know, are reusable, uh, generally plastic, sometimes made of silicone. They're essentially like a cup or a, a cap that mm-hmm. blocks the cervix. Right. They're intended to block the sperm from traveling up the, the canal. Exactly. So their methodology then is to prevent fertilization. Um, And that's all that they do. Now, a diaphragm and a cervical cap, unlike a condom, uh, to really be effective, they have to be used with a spermicide. And we'll talk a little bit about spermicides in a second. But um, again, Mm -hmm. these methods are essentially intended to keep sperm out of the uterus. Right. Another one of those is the sponge. Um, we mentioned that, although currently in the United States, it's unavailable. Yes. Um, so There's only one manufacturer. They're out of business right now. So, right. So, uh, it, but that said, it, it's similar to a diaphragm or a cap. It's instead of made of being made of plastic, it's made of like a spongy material. It already has the spermicide in it and right. it's intended to be disposable. It's a one-time right. use type thing. Right. Um, so explain what spermicide is. So, so we mentioned is. spermicides. Now, the most popular spermicide, really the only one that's really widely used is something called nonoxanil 9. Um, and uh, spermicides, 
really they can be used by themselves um, right. as a barrier. And essentially, it's it's like a barrier because again, the goal is to prevent sperm from getting into the uterus. So it's sort of a chemical barrier, as it were. Right. Um, they're, they're, they come in all forms. There's creams, there's gels, there's films, there's foams, there's suppositories. Yeah, you name it. If, if you can... Lots of options. If you can put it in your uterus. Inserting. Yeah, if you can put it in your in your vagina, they've made it into a form that will work with that. But it, curiously, in, in spite of the name, spermicides don't actually kill sperm. Mm-hmm. It just simply slows them down so they I, can't reach the egg. I think that's a myth-busting fact there right there. There you go, MythBusters 101. So uh, that said, spermicides are generally pretty effective even by themselves. They're even more effective if you add in another barrier like a condom or a diaphragm. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I will mention uh, there is an alternative to a spermicide. Some people um, don't like nonoxinol 9 or they might be sensitive to nonoxinol 9. There is a product called Fexi, P-H-E-X-X-I. Fexi mm-hmm. simply just modulates the vaginal pH. In other words, it creates an acidic environment. Sperm don't like that. They don't survive very well. They don't swim very well, as it were. Um, so Fexi is an alternative to that. But now the downside of Fexi is that it can be very expensive and it is a prescription. It d- yeah, it does require a prescription. Right. Um, so the benefits, again, of these barrier methods is that they are non-hormonal. Mm-hmm. There are no systemic side effects mm-hmm. to using these methods. They only prevent fertilization. So they're not they're not removing or they're not preventing the implantation of a fetus. Right. So there's no ethical concern. Right. And technically, they're 98% effective. Um, that's at least what most of them claim. But If you did everything right, they if, would be 98% effective. Did, right. Real life studies show that there's a 10 to 15% failure rate. Right. Again, um, that, that efficacy goes up if you are combining these methods. In other words, if you're combining a diaphragm with a spermicide, if you're combining a condom with a spermicide, mm-hmm. then, uh, or if you're combining a spermicide with another barrier method, right. uh, you, you can increase the efficacy with these, right. um, you know, closer to that 98% method. Obviously, they only work if you use them. Exactly. So uh, you that, do. There, there is the <laughs> user has to be using. Yes, yes. Yeah. And you know, when it comes to cost, I mean, diaphragms or caps are generally about ninety dollars. Um, they do require a prescription um, and a fitting. Um, so a doctor's off doctor's office visit. Um, but they're reusable and they last for about one to two years. Yeah. So that that's not very much if you if you talk about it. And of course, condoms are really inexpensive. Generally speaking, we're talking like two bucks each, something like that. So uh, most of us could afford that if we needed to. Um, Now, downside of this is that all of these barrier methods have to be applied prior to sex every single time. Right. So diaphragms and cervical cups and even the sponge actually need to be inserted into the wife prior to arousal. Um, And that's an important note because once a woman begins um, the arousal process, her shape actually changes, mm-hmm. and it will change the way that these um, fit. Yeah. And so they do need to be inserted prior to arousal. Yeah. Um, and then they have to be left in place at least six hours after sex because those little sperm, they're, they're very dedicated. They're, they're going to stick around, so <laughs> you got to keep that barrier in place. And so you got to keep that barrier in place. That's yeah. exactly right. Uh, so that... 
may or may not be something that you want to bother with, but th- again, they're relatively effective if you're done the right way. Now, in contrast to a diaphragm, a condom has to be applied to a husband after he's aroused for right. obvious reasons. Right. And so that may interfere with just the course of yes. your sexual experience. Yes. Um, like we said earlier, diaphragms and cups require a prescription in the United States. And so you do need to have a doctor and then you usually go in for an actual fitting mm-hmm. um, to make sure that they fit right. Yep. Condoms and sponges, of course, are non-prescription. So you don't necessarily need a doctor for those. But condoms and diaphragms both may be adversely affected by certain types of lubricants. And that's really important to recognize. You you cannot or, and should not use oil-based lubricants with latex condoms or with diaphragms. Right. Now, they do make plastic condoms, which are compatible with oil-based lubes, if that's your preference. Uh, for instance, coconut oil, which is a natural product, but it will, it potentially could break down the condoms and cause them to be ineffective. Same with the diaphragms. Now, you can get a lube, though, that is not oil-based, and mm-hmm. so you can meet that con another way. Water-based lubes are generally safe in every case. If your diaphragm or cervical cap is silicone-based, you should avoid silicone lubricants. So, right. so again, you just have to pay close attention know what you're to using. all the products. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Now, another thing to note is that spermicide should not be ingested. And so that means that spontaneous oral sex is going to be hard to do if you're using these methods. Right. So no spontaneous oral sex with spermicides. And spermicides are also irritating for some women or for some men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're sensitive, um, watch out. You, you don't want the burning sensations there. Uh, and condoms, as most of us recognize, also affect how sex feels. So that, may that be makes it a, a, down, a downside. That makes it a, a downside, Absolutely. certainly. And now, it, condoms and diaphragms and sponges also impact your root, sexual routine like we were talking about. Right. So that, that's also potentially a downside. All right, another form of birth control would be like hormonal methods and specifically short-acting systemic hormonal methods. So what we're talking about then are these hormones that are administered, and we'll talk about the different ways that they are administered, but they are hormones that are given to a woman primarily to try to prevent ovulation. So it prevents the egg from even getting to the fallopian tube. So Mm -hmm. if and when the sperm get there, there's nothing to fertilize. Now, these hormones also have additional effects. Um, They will cause the cervical mucus to thicken. So the the mucus that is at the cervix, especially the opening of the uterus, uh, will, will cause that mucus to thicken so that sperm have a more difficult time traveling into the uterus. Um, And these methods also, there is at least a theoretical effect that they may also prevent a fertilized egg from being implanted. So that's, uh, you know, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more, but that's potentially a a concern here. Right. So I think the the most well-known of this is what's often just referred to as The pill. Sure. And and the pill is actually, there's dozens of different choices here. Right. Uh, And some of them have just a single hormone called progestin, um, which is the the synthetic version of progesterone, uh, which is the pregnancy hormone. And some, uh, some contraceptive pills have a combination of hormones 
both progestin and estrogen. Mm-hmm. There's different reasons why a doctor might prescribe one or the other, um, but suffice it to say, there's a couple of different options. They also come in all different kinds of doses, higher doses, lower doses. Right. Again, your uh, doctor... Obviously, your do- a doctor is administering all of that. And, and, and they can help you understand which options might be better or worse. Right. But the pill isn't the only hormonal method out there. Right. There are things called the a vaginal ring. And I think the name brands of this is a Nuva ring or an Anovera. Yeah, th- those those are the two that are on the market, at least the most common that are on the market. These are plastic rings that are inserted into the vagina. Uh, you either you insert them either once a month or depending on the model, you insert it once a week, uh, depending on the type. So th- they they are there's different rings, different uses, but the the methodology is the same. The idea is this ring. It's made of plastic, but it has a progestin hormone in it, Mm -hmm. and that hormone then diffuses into the surrounding uh, vaginal and uterine tissues. And again, it has the same methodology. Primarily, these rings are designed to thicken the cervical mucus to keep the sperm out. Some of these rings will also have additional hormonal effects that prevent ovulation as well. Another one is birth control shot. The Depo-Provera is the main brand of a birth control shot. This is a shot that's administered once every three months um, when you're taking that. Right. And uh, so these systemic hormones can, in addition to preventing contraception, or sorry, preventing fertilization (laughs) and preventing pregnancy, can also make your period lighter. They can make your periods more regular. They can mm-hmm. reduce cramps. They can reduce other PMS symptoms. They may prevent acne. They may prevent iron deficiency. They may prevent bone thinning. They may prevent cysts in your breasts and ovaries, and they may prevent certain cancers. That's so a, That's a long list. Yes. And so these methods, sometimes these drugs uh, are prescribed for these particular symptoms and not right. necessarily just for birth control. Now, the, some of the side effects of using these type of hormones may include nausea, sore breast, spotting, um, headaches, and weight gain, yeah. to name a few. For most of these side effects are temporary. They will only last the first two or three months. Um, sometimes they don't, and, and some women don't even notice a difference in how they feel. Some women feel terrible on these hormones. Um, And I guess we should also add, rarely with some of these combination hormone pills, especially the ones that contain estrogen, there is a slightly increased risk of heart attack, stroke, blood clots, and liver tumors. So So the pros of using these hormonal methods would be that they are, in general, highly effective. Um, Usually a 93 to a 99% effective rate at preventing pregnancy. And when they're not effective, that's usually due to user error. Yeah, like you forgot to take your pill or you (laughs) forgot to put the ring in at the right time, whatever. You might consider that a pro of this would be that, you know, there's a routine to it. So for some women, they really like that. There's Mm -hmm. a daily, weekly, or monthly routine. Um, and, And that you know, just taking these may improve sex since you don't have to worry about getting pregnant and yeah. you don't have to do anything differently when you are engaged in sexual yeah. activity. It it allows for spontaneous sex. Right. Without any thought to how are we going to prevent pregnancy this time. Um, it, again, when it's used properly, these methods will essentially entirely prevent ovulation. 
and therefore they're going to prevent fertilization as right. the primary means of birth control. Is it possible that they are also preventing implantation? That is possible, but it's so, so, so highly unlikely. Right. Their main method is preventing ovulation, therefore mm-hmm. preventing fertilization. Um, it, some of these methods even can help you um, skip periods if yeah. you want to do that. Um, and in general, the progestin-only pill can actually be used while breastfeeding. Yeah. And there's We're no- not doctors. Talk to your doctor yep. about that. But that would be um, one of the potential pros to this. Now, that said, there are cons Mm -hmm. uh, because it does require a regular routine. So if you're not a routine person, that actually might be a con. Yes. It also requires a prescription. They cost about $50 a month, most of these methods. For most of of you that have insurance, your insurance will cover this and and make it essentially zero for you, zero dollars. Um, but again, there is at least in some cases some cost associated. Um, there, it's also, I think, worth pointing out that certain medications, including certain antibiotics, can make these systemic hormonal effectives less effective. So you should know that. Your doctor should know that before prescribing uh, medications to you if you're on any of these methods. Right. They, most of these methods take about two to five days to really start being effective. So keep that in mind. Yep. Um, give yourself a little bit of time. <laughs> and it, sometimes it may take two or three months or longer to get pregnant after you stop using hormonal birth control um, because it is affecting your natural hormones. Yeah. Um, and there potentially then is adverse effects due to that. Right. And so right. that that might be a serious reason to not use these. So those are some shorter acting methods. Um, let's let's finish out by talking about some longer term options, sort of the set it and forget it methods, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's start that conversation with the a progestin implant. Mm-hmm. So this is the birth control implant, uh, as it's often referred to. This is like a, a tiny little rod about the size of a matchstick that is um, inserted or implanted under your skin in your arm uh, for women, of course. Uh, and this method, uh, th- this little rod is going to release then very, very small amounts of progestin over the course of about three to five years. Yeah. So that's definitely a set it and forget it, right? You, you right. get one procedure, it lasts for three to five years. Um, because it is a progestin, which again is a hormonal implant, uh, it's going to prevent fertilization by, again, thickening the cervical mucus. And for most women, it's also going to prevent ovulation. Right. In fact, in some women, it stops your period altogether after a few months. So um, there's maybe some pros and cons in that. But Right. Now, it, it, as far as cost, it's up to $1,300 to get it implanted. And then when you're ready to have it removed, it's about $300. Yeah. And most health insurance covers that cost completely. Yeah. So again, health insurers are very much interested in covering the cost for your contraception because they don't want to pay for labor and delivery. <laughs> Maybe so. So a pro to this method um, is that it is highly, highly effective, a 99% effective rate. It's essentially impossible for this method to fail. I mean, obviously there's always exceptions, but that's it's a pretty effective method. 
Another benefit is that it is long-lasting. Three to five years, that's quite long-lasting. It doesn't affect sex, right? Again, it's a set-it-and-forget-it kind of method. Right. Um, And it actually may help ease PMS, cramps, and periods in some women, Mm -hmm. um, which could certainly be a pro. Now, the cons of this is that it does require a doctor to place it and then remove it, which may be slightly painful. Yeah, it it does have to be removed. Generally, after three years sometimes up to five years, but it does need to be removed. So if you're going to get it pl- placed, then you got to also think about that it's going right. to have to be taken out. Um, there are, of course, hormonal side effects. We've kind of talked about that mm-hmm. already in some of the other um, methods, but the same kinds of hormonal effects you see with the pill, uh, as it were, the, you're going to see potentially those same effects here. Um, and it may take several months for these effects to go away after you you have this implant removed. Right. So it may affect your ability to get pregnant after yes. having this removed. And I, I will say, we, we said it doesn't affect sex. I would, maybe it's a good place to add this. And this is true even with short-term hormonal methods. Even though it doesn't interfere with the activities of sex, being on the hormones for some women does significantly decrease sex drive. That's right. I'm glad you're bringing that up, Matt, because that that for a lot of women is a very large con Mm -hmm. and reason to think carefully before getting on um, some kind of synthetic hormone. It it may lower your sex drive. It may also decrease the uh, vaginal secretions. Um, So so it may cause dryness um, with, Mm -hmm. with sexual intercourse. So there's a number of potential downsides um, to consider there with the hormonal effects. But again, some women experience this, many women do not. So right. it, you know, individual results may vary. Uh, finally, in, in terms of long-term uh, birth control methods, uh, there are intrauterine implants or IUDs. Otherwise known as IUDs, right? These are small devices that get inserted into the uterus. Um, and most of them are T-shaped. Um, some newer ones are... Um, different shapes, but most are T-shaped. Um, they are inserted and they are extremely long lasting, mm-hmm. some up to um, five to 10 years. Yeah. So that's a set it and forget it for sure. Uh, there's two different types of IUDs. Okay. The, the classic type is a copper IUD. So it's a little plastic T-shaped thing, but it has copper wrapped around that plastic frame. Uh, the way this works is that copper kind of leaches into the uterus, into the, the tissues there. It's not harmful to the uterus, the copper is not, but it is toxic to sperm. Right, and so sperm cannot properly move in a copper-rich environment, and so it prevents the sperm from reaching the egg. Yes, now, again, this is where it is a little bit controversial. Copper may also prevent implantation, Mm-hmm. Again, this is controversial. Uh, the research studies that I looked at are very mixed about whether we think that it is actually preventing implantation or not. That said, like these other methods we talked about, the primary focus of this method is to prevent fertilization. And this method is so effective at preventing sperm from reaching the fallopian tube that it's very unlikely that fertilization would even occur. Right. But it, Again, if you just want to eliminate that possibility, then this might not be the method for you. Now, and there are, there's another type of IED, IUD, and this one is hormonal, right? Right. So again, that's a, it's another T-shaped plastic device, 
but instead of being wrapped in copper, this one has a hormone infused into this uh, little device. That hormone, again, kind of seeps out over time, and it's a progestin, so a a progesterone alternative, uh, synthetic uh, progesterone. The, the purpose of the progestin is to cause thickening of that cervical mucus. It's going to thereby prevent fertilization because it's going to prevent sperm from being able to get into the uterus. Mm-hmm. Again, because it's hormonal, it may prevent implantation. Again, some controversy exists there. Uh, but for a lot of individuals, this hormonal method is even going to also prevent ovulation. So if there's no ovulation occurring, then... It's impossible for there to be fertilization. Right. And, and these are both local hormonal effects, right? Mm-hmm. So there's minimal systemic effects um, that are going to be happening as far as your mood or other physical effects or yeah. risks. So, some women have more systemic effects than others. But in general, the amount of hormone that's used in these IUDs is very low compared to other methods. Now... When we were doing the research for this, this is not how I thought IUDs worked. And so maybe I'm alone in this, but I think it's important to point out that neither of these IUD methods are meant to remove an implanted fetus. Right. That the myth is that IUDs scrape the babies out of a uterus. Yeah, because what they I ha- have learned yes. <laughs> is that that's not what's happening. And Trust us, we looked at many, many, many resources well, and, and you sources can look it up. of information. You, you can look it up yourself, but the, 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 I think that's a common misconception that IUDs right. um, are scraping these babies out and that's not really how they work. Right. Uh, one of the benefits of IUDs is really, regardless of whether it's a hormonal or a copper IUD, they both are 99% effective. Yeah. Essentially 100%. Um, nothing's 100%, but this is as close as it gets. Right. And like we've already said, they're long-lasting. Um, but another benefit is that they are very reversible. Um, they do not, in general, affect long-term fertility. fertility. And yeah. so once it's removed, you're good to go. Yeah, especially much. the copper ones. You, you can pull them out and you could potentially get pregnant, uh, very easily get pregnant in the next month or two. Uh, uh, they're generally safe for breastfeeding, especially the copper ones. Right. Um, they don't affect other medications. Again, mostly the copper ones, especially. Um, and they do not affect sex as in causing sexual pain. Mm-hmm. Generally, that's true. Some women with IUDs will have some um, painfulness just associated with the presence of the IUD, especially if it's not inserted exactly right. Um, that, of course, might cause some sexual pain. But generally speaking, these things do not affect the way that you have sex. Now, they may affect your periods. So some of the copper IUDs may make your periods heavier or irregular, especially at first. Most women report that this returns to normal over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the hormonal IUD um, in some cases actually cause some women to completely stop their periods. So you decide whether that's a pro or a con. <laughs> the, the hormonal IUDs uh, also do have some risks of systemic hormones. So you're getting some systemic hormone in you. It's generally pretty small. And so the risks are pretty small, but that may be bothersome to some folks. Now, these both require appointments with a doctor or a nurse. um, And obviously, the insertion happens in a doctor's office. um, And so you may experience some pain during placement of the device or removal of the device. 
Um, and there is a small risk of infection mm-hmm. um, of having the coil. Um, there's also a small risk of having the coil move after implantation. Yeah, it, it can move. Sometimes it can dig into the wall of the uterus, and that can be painful. So, yes, there are risks because it's something foreign in your body, but generally those risks are pretty small. Uh, the, these are relatively expensive. The cost to place one is anywhere between $500 to $1,500 as far as I could find. Um, and it's cost about $100 to $500 to have them removed. Again, many health insurance providers will uh, make sure you get one for free if you want it. So that is a plus. So that, that's the majority of, that's really all of the common contraceptive methods. However, some of you might be asking, well, what about the plan B? What about the morning after pill? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that, that certainly is an option. It there, is, there is a category of what's called emergency contraceptives. Right. And that includes the plan B morning after pill, or there's another one called the Ella pill. I, I We're not going to go into a lot of detail here because I think these are pretty poor contraceptive methods for a married couple that's having regular sex. I mean, right. are you really going to go get a plan B every time that you have sex? Right. I hope that's not your plan. But just for the sake of information, so you know how these work, uh, and so you have one episode which includes all of this, yes. we will tell you a little bit about these at yeah. the end here. Yeah, so, so plan B or Ella, these are high-dose hormones, short-acting. Uh, they are intended to prevent ovulation, and they basically make the uterus inhospitable to sperm. Now, these also, for the most part, will prevent implantation of a fertilized egg uh, in the event that fertilization does occur. Again, that's not their primary mode of action, but generally speaking, that is what will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, maybe one important distinction to make here is that these methods, whether it's Plan B or whether it's Ella, do not remove an implanted fetus which means it's not inducing abortion, at least in the classic sense of that word. Um, and, and that's contrary to maybe to what many people might think. Mm-hmm. Um, that is in contrast to the abortion pill or what's known as RU486. Mm-hmm. The abortion pill will absolutely remove an early term implanted fetus, even one that's two months old, sometimes later. So Hmm. we're not going to go through pros and cons of this. We're just putting this out there so you have the knowledge. But again, Plan B and Ella, those are not abortion pills. They they are generally intended to prevent ovulation. Again, because you can have sex five days before ovulation and still get pregnant. And so that's what the Ella, that's what Plan B are intended to prevent. But again, if you're a married couple... You're sh- you should be having regular sex, so these are not... This, isn't, this shouldn't be part of the conversation right. for you. But All right, so I think that covers birth control, deeply covers that, That's birth about control. as fully as we can or you we want us to cover it. We have taken a lot of your time, but we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback. Yeah, you can reach us podcast at IntimateCovenant.com or send us anonymous feedback at the website IntimateCovenant.com slash podcast and click on the button, contact the podcast. All right, Matt, I think that does it finally. Give us our wrap up. The decision whether to use birth control should be carefully considered after you've assessed whether your motivations stem from a sense of responsible use of God's blessings in your life or whether you are being motivated by selfish and materialistic desires. 
the specific methodology of birth control that you use should be chosen based on important criteria, including mode of action, convenience, efficacy, risks, compatibility, and reversibility. Many options are available, and couples should reconsider this conversation frequently to determine what method is best for their current circumstances. Now it's time to grab your spouse and your Bible and head to your kitchen table to have the conversation about birth control options. How do you feel about your current method? Could there be benefit to considering a different option given your current circumstances? Thanks as always for subscribing, rating, and sharing the podcast. Thank you to all of you who are supporting us on Patreon. We appreciate your support and your encouragement. Until next time, keep striving and don't settle. Thank you for listening. If you have something to add, we would invite your feedback, questions, and suggestions via our email, podcast at intimatecovenant.com. To submit anonymous questions and feedback, visit our website, intimatecovenant.com backslash podcast. Click on the button, contact the podcast for an anonymous submission form. In addition to this podcast, Intimate Covenant offers group Bible studies, private couples coaching, premarital counseling, weekend seminars, and an annual marriage retreat. We would love to continue the conversation about God's plan for intimate marriage and holy sexuality with you and your friends. If you're interested in bringing us to your church or small group, please contact us, podcast at intimatecovenant.com. May God continue to bless your marriage. 